Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle, delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trigicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Taurus, Makers of the Raging Hunter Handgun. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, Double Nickel Taxidermy. Now here's your host, Larry Wysu. Fox, thank you for that introduction. David is a very important part of this this podcast in so many different ways. And not only does he introduce our segments every time, but also he's the guy that actually does the production work in terms of putting everything together so that things kind of sound halfway right and kind of he kind of really makes me sound good a lot of times. So David really appreciate all the hard work that you do to not only introduces but to produce us and also to make certain that the podcasts are released at the the proper time as well too so really appreciate you you know david's a great musician and one of these days around a campfire the first opportunity i had to head back up to northeast texas kind of close to uh Seagoville, where david serves as a dj among other thing everything else that he does in a community radio a public uh radio station among other things but uh Going to try to get David out to maybe to the Buck and Bass Ranch and get uh, Jeff Rice and Luke Clayton and, and me and maybe a couple of other guys together and kind of sit around the campfire and and let David do a little bit in, in a little entertaining if you might, you want to say it that way because he is truly entertaining as well too in a lot of different ways and a great musician and pretty good songwriter pretty good singer as well too so. 
look forward to getting David around the campfire and, and uh, kind of let him show some of the other talents that he, he has and, and but really appreciate everything he does for our podcast. And of course, he also helps the podcast that I do with uh, Luke Clayton that's on uh, Sporting Classics Daily. We do one a week there as well, too, called Campfires with Luke and Larry. And that's on the the Sporting Classics Daily site. And you can go there, and it's available other places as well, too. That particular... Podcast, if you will, kind of like the radio show that I do with Luke called Campfires with Luke and Larry as well, too. And, and uh, on the Luke Clayton Outdoors, which can be heard on a lot of different radio stations across Texas and kind of the southeast kind of thing, can also be heard at catfishradio.org, which is uh, Luke's website and uh, oh, great place to kind of keep up with what Luke and I are doing in a lot of different ways, including with what we're doing with uh, A Sportsman's Life. Now, I know a lot of you are already aware of this, but uh, Luke Clayton, Jeff Rice, and I do a weekly digital TV show available on carbontv.com called A Sportsman's Life. And uh, it's real world TV, folks. It's kind of like the podcast that I do, the radio shows that Luke and I do. Whatever happens, happens kind of thing. Uh, we don't do do-overs very often. There's a time or two I think we wish that we could have done it that way. But the that show, if you will, being a TV show, is unscripted totally. For the most part, it is uh, un a lot of different other ways, too, in that, as I say, whatever happens, happens. If we go fishing, we don't catch anything. That's what we show. If we go to hunt and we don't take anything, <laughs> that's what we show. You know, that's all part of hunting and fishing in the outdoors. But I think the, the, the big part is with all the things that, that I've been involved with outside more recently, the writing where I can go back and and do uh, uh, a little bit of editing. and, and uh, But everything else that, that I'm involved in is pretty much off the cuff. Well, how it happens, what happens, all those kind of things. And I mentioned the writing as well, too. I, I do a lot of blogs every month, and those go to, like, uh, to Hornady, to Trigicon, to uh, Carbon TV, oh, my gosh, uh, Millet Communications, Cryptech, DSC, of course, does uh, my pod, uh, not only the podcast can be heard there, but also you can see a lot of the things that I do there on, on the blogs that I do. And of course, through the uh, DSC publication, the absolutely out of this world, every other month publication, I have a article in there and have had now for probably about 20 years or so in each and every one of them talking about hunting adventures, talking about sometimes a little bit of guns, but more hunting adventure and a little bit of wildlife management and those kind of things. With that mentioned, I recently formed a partnership with Brandon Houston in H3 Whitetail Solutions, which is a wildlife management company, if you will. Now, it says Whitetail Solutions, but we work with game species and non-game species and principally with habitat to try to improve the habitat so that all game species and the plant communities that are there all benefit. So you can learn a little bit more about that if you like. And of course, a lot of my blogs are going to be there. Miss Stephanie Murphy, who does most of my Oh, God, I say most of my, I probably does nearly all of my uh, social media work 
So uh, at, at Larry Weissoon Outdoors on Instagram and Larry Weissoon Outdoors on Facebook. But Miss Stephanie's in the process of, as I send her blogs that I've written over the years, we'll start showing those under the H3 whitetailsolutions.com so you can, you can go there as well too beyond all the other places with with hornady with trigicon trigicon hunt uh my gosh there's a lot of different places to uh, to read the blogs that i do and kind of keep up with what's going on right now and, and then too uh, i do a lot of writing for north american deer hunter and north american outdoorsman which are outdoor specialty media sites if you will they are totally internet but uh there's a lot of opportunity there to read those and if you look up north american deer hunter and north american outdoorsman if you look that up through google it'll point you in the right direction there as well too you know in the past i've had the opportunity to, to spend a lot of time outdoors uh looking forward to a lot more of that time as well too more recently i've been uh very much involved in, in things going on with dsc and dsc foundation our dsc foundation is going to have our second annual fundraiser summer gala if you will june the 4th in uh dallas at the Frontiers of Flight Museum, the same place we had it last year. We've got an array of unbelievable hunts, items that are going to be able to be bid upon and uh, hunts from around the world, but also from here in Texas and Oklahoma and a few other places. I mentioned H3 Whitetail Solutions. Well, we're going to, among other things, have a hunt that will probably be on the... Um, raffle rather than live auction but it could show up there as well too about a whitetail hunt for a deer up to about in the 160s or or thereabout on some property out west of fort worth that uh my partner in h3 whitetail solutions and his family uh brandon houston have been working on that property for a while I, I took a really nice 10 point there last year and looking forward to hunting there again this year and, and uh actually in the next several days about the time this comes out i will probably be hunting white not white i'll be hunting white tail and shed antlers but i'll be hunting uh spring turkey and wild hogs on that particular property and and once we get there and start things rolling i'll probably have brandon and i do the podcast from really out in the field from literally around a campfire that was set up outside if the wind's not blowing too bad to try to record as well too but that's one of the items we've got uh, some great great hunts coming up there's a, a mule deer hunt that'll be on the auction as well too from texas on the hargrove ranch where this past year I shot two absolutely fantastic mule deer and was able to do so because they are now under Texas's managed land permit. And with that, you're not limited to what your license tags are, which is one mule deer on the Texas tag. So I was able to take two outstanding mule deer, and, and we'll do a little bit more about that as we get into the summer and start talking about mule deer down the way. One of the other things that's going to be on the auction item of the live auction with uh, uh, the DSC Foundation is a rifle that I am personally donating. It, it's my personal rifle. It is a 300 Win Mag that Carol and Kerio Day built for me back in about 1996, 1997. It's a 300 Win Mag. 
custom rifle, uh, Teflon coated, unbelievably accurate. Uh, it's got my signature in gold on the barrel. It was the it was built for me to take to Africa, and it was a gun that I took to Africa for my first African safari, and and uh, so I'll have all the provenance involved with that particular. Unfortunately, that was not a filmed hunt, but I did do it with uh, Kim Hicks and uh, Texas or Dallas Cowboy great uh, Jay Novacek. The three of us and a couple other several other friends, I should say, hunted Africa on frontier safaris. Our first trip there and. This is the rifle that I used there, and then also used it quite a bit here in North America. But uh, all the provenance, along with the photographs in the books and things like that, will be part of that package, and it will be on, on the grand auction. The rifle is intact exactly the way it was when I, when I took it to Africa, complete with a uh, high-dollar Simmons scope. Back then, I was the Simmons Pro Hunter, and I worked with Simmons Optics, and they developed a sniper scope that they built. Oh my gosh, less than a thousand for the U.S. military, and and it was never that scope was never marketed to the public. It was simply a, a military one, but uh, I was very fortunate to get one. It's on the scope. the The gun is totally original, with the exception that very recently I took it to uh, to match great arms to MG Arms there in Spring, Texas, and visited with with Carol and and Carrie and. And they ended up replacing the trigger on it with a new jewel trigger. So there's a brand new trigger on it. It's a lightweight gun. The action is a skeletonized Remington Model 700, but uh, and fairly thin tapered barrel. But I'll tell you what, that rifle will put three shots into the same hole at 100 yards. So that's going to be there. And, and not only with the beauty of today's internet is is that uh these items will also be able to be you can bid upon them uh even if you can't make it to the uh, the event itself on june the 4th uh there'll be an internet auction as well going on at the same time and as we get a little bit closer to that june 4th date i will uh start publicizing where and how you can bid even if you can't be there so you know, there's so many good items that we've got on that. I think we're, this year we're going to have like almost 30 or so primary auction items. Miss Fiona Capstick will be there and will be honored as our conservationist of the year as well, too. And, and uh, we've got uh, confirmation that uh, Richard Childress, who, of course, from racing uh, uh, <laughs> fame and also now from rodeo fame, from uh, the PBR type things that he's doing there and his, his winery. And, and I know that, that uh, uh, Richard's going to be there and, and just a host of other people. And it, the seating is limited. So if, if you're interested in, in coming, please go to our website, which is www.dscf.org. And, uh, and there you're going to be able to, uh, to learn how you can how you can actually bid on the items and that's probably a great place to go because there also will be a, a, a link there that'll put you on to all the items that are available and i think maybe even this year there may be some silent auctions items on there because we've got some really outstanding uh silent auction items this year as well too so but you can learn more about being able to get there how to get tickets and all those other kind of things about the dsc foundation gala uh june the 4th in dallas as i mentioned at the museums of uh of flight uh 
there as well. So go to the website and, and learn all that you can. Before we get into the day's program, it's kind of an interesting one to me because it's a question from uh, from a gentleman who, who sent me a question not too very long ago. But before we get into it, to me, this is an absolutely ideal time to get a few words from uh, Hayden Outdoors. Hayden Outdoors is the brand that sells land, and they truly do. They, these guys are, in my opinion, the true professionals when it comes to real estate, when it comes to anything having to do with the outdoors. Several of those guys that are their agents scattered across the, the country in the different states are, are longtime friends of mine who have been biologists, who've been outfitters, who who have long time been hunters and conservationists. They know the land. They 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 can sit down with you, they will be very open and honest with you and, and tell you that uh, this is a piece of property you might want to look at, or here's some property you may want to look at, but I don't really think it's suited for what you're telling me that you're wanting. So before we go any farther and, and get into today's program, uh, let's get a few words from Hayden Outdoors, the company that sells land. Once a spike, always a spike. A question that should have been put to rest years ago, but unfortunately still is questioned to this day. With so many opinions out there on this subject, my answer has always been based off research and facts. And the facts are that determining the future genetic potential of a buck that hasn't been able to reach full maturity cannot be done. But it's crucial you understand that the reason yearling bucks develop spike antlers is from a lack of proper nutrition, which is why harvesting a buck that hasn't reached maturity is a bad management decision. You can change the future genetic potential of that buck and other bucks in your herd by increasing the nutritional value and availability to those nutrients on your property. I'm Brandon Houston with H3 Whitetail Solutions. <laughs> Thanks so much. You know, that's really, truly good advice and, and good things to think about if you own land, if you're thinking about buying land, or, you know, if it's just something that you're really, really interested. As I mentioned, you can learn more about Hayden Outdoors by going to their website, which is HaydenOutdoors.com, and see what's available and find out where the agents are in your particular part of the country or where you might well be interested in either selling your land or buying a new piece of land for recreational purposes, for investment purposes, for ranching purposes, or maybe just a place to kind of get away and and uh, plant your own roses and smell roses while you're there. Get in touch with those people. You'll, real, you'll be really glad that you did. Now, today's program is, is, is a question, and it's got a lot of different answers to it. It comes to us from Tim Lawhorn. Now, Tim has submitted this question some time ago. Uh, it was relative to, I think, some statements that I made either on the uh, TV show, A Sportsman's Life, or possibly one of the podcasts that I did for Hornady or Trejacon or, or Carbon TV or, uh, or DSC. But the question is, is, Larry, what is a pretty darn good deer hunter? <laughs> I must have made that statement sometime back. Tim, I, I appreciate you uh, uh, sending it to me and said, okay, explain. What is a pretty darn good deer hunter? Deer hunting to me is something that's so very, very special. It, it, there are so many reasons that I hunt deer. Of course, to feed my family, to, uh, to, to feed my desire to spend time outdoors and learn about wildlife, to, to, uh, 
doing it right. Doing it right to me means a lot of different things, but completely from the point of starting with the land and producing habitat and producing that habitat so it supports wildlife, not only white-tailed deer, but many other species as well, game species and non-game species, everything from the, including bugs and bees that are so important for us in terms of making certain that plants are propagated and, and uh, are continued into the future. But a pretty good deer hunter and a pretty good darn good deer hunter is someone who is involved in, in all of this in terms of management, in terms of learning about what white-tailed deer are or deer are. It could be mule deer, it could be Colombian blacktail, could be Sitka blacktail, or any of the other deer species that we have in North America or for that part in different parts of the world, like the roe deer over in Europe, the fallow deer and, and the axis deer else place, which is now very common. Some of those are very common here in, in Texas and in other states as well too. But learning every aspect of that animal from the, the habitat that it likes to what it eats to uh, what it does throughout the year. How does it change throughout the year, both physiologically, but also maybe psychologically in, in terms of how that animal thinks. It means uh, knowing the anatomy of the deer. You know, with the FTW, there's a constant thing, which is the where they teach the sportsman's all-weather, all-terrain marksmanship course, and where a lot of our military guys train. And, and if you want to learn more about that course, we've done some things there, including the new hunter program that uh, takes somebody from a uh, who's never even handled a gun to teach them how to handle a gun, to shoot properly, to shoot accurately, to deer anatomy or game anatomy or wildlife anatomy, to the habitat, to different things that the animals eat, to taking that animal down cleanly, to learning how to eviscerate or gut that animal, how to skin that animal, how to quarter that animal, how to take that those muscles apart for the best possible meat, and then how to cook that animal as well too, and, and maybe even a little bit with paired it with the right way and kind of thing. So that's that's a great course if you if you're interested. You know, we started out that one with the intent of, of it being primarily for people who had never been outdoors, and now we're interested to where it's kind of involved evolved to where we have quite a few people who actually have hunted a fair amount, but have never really learned a lot of these other things. So that that's a good place to start, too. I know I'm kind of straying off the the, uh, the border here a little bit, but, uh, you know, all that that is really, that I mentioned is, is, is truly, truly part of it. With, with deer anatomy, our deer anatomy is somewhat different than what you might find in, if you've hunted Africa before, in in Africa, so much or so many of those animals, the vitals, meaning essentially the heart and lungs sit forward in the, the shoulder a lot farther to the front of that animal than they do with, with some of our North American species. Uh, some of those animals we tell people sometimes to shoot immediately behind the shoulder. Well, that leaves a, little, <laughs> leaves a lot of distance there, but immediately behind the shoulder here in, in North America means right about where the fold of that front shoulder is, where the, if you come up to the front leg and there's kind of a knuckle there, and then just right above that knuckle, about a third of the way up the body is where the majority of the, the heart and lung tissues are. And thing about it is if you can take those out, you put that animal down very quickly and humanely, which should be the job of any and everybody that, that shoots at an animal, 
regardless what that species is, or, or really regardless where you hunt, you, you, you owe that to the animal that you're taking, is to just put him down quickly and humanely. And uh, so one of the things to me is to not only learn about the anatomy, but uh, where it is, but then also where it's located, where the heart and lung areas are located relative to that animal being positioned and standing at different angles, meaning straight on looking at you, quartering to you, left, right, quartering away from you, left, right, even going directly away from you sometimes. A, a very killing, bringing down shot a lot of times is what used to be recalled are called a, a Texas heart shot, which is basically trying to hit the spine or breaking down that pelvic girdle and, and putting that animal down very quickly. To me, that is that is a, a, a secondary shot. The first shot should always be through the heart and lung area. Uh, occasionally, I'll hear somebody say, well, I'm, I just shoot him in the head or I just shoot him in the neck. And oh my God, I, I hate those kind of things because unless you so precisely place that bullet in the brain or to sever the spinal cord, which is, oh my God, about the size of a ballpoint pen. If you can do that with every shot, then maybe so, but still the chances of hitting that, that spinal column precisely or putting a shot into the brain, like on a white-tailed deer, which is about the size of a, uh, Oh, good God. Maybe it's not the size of your child's fist, if you made a, he or she made a fist, or a, a big lemon, if you will. That's about the size that you're looking at on, on, on a deer, most deer species. So to me, but if you can put a bullet, a well-constructed bullet that uh, has controlled expansion so that as soon as it hits, it starts opening up and destroys lots of the heart and lung tissue like like the Hornady ELDX or the Hornady SST or even the uh, some of the soft point bullets that Hornady makes. Over the years, I've been involved in the taking of a tremendous number of animals. Initially, as a wildlife biologist, where I did a lot of the collection work in the state, and to always having been a hunter, to having been a guide, to having done some outfitting, to being with a lot of people when they did take animals. And so I've had the opportunity to to really investigate and pay particular attention to bullet performance and shot placement over the years. Every animal that I've taken and every animal that I've been involved in taking, we've done a complete necropsy, meaning the kind of the animal term for doing an autopsy, because I wanted to see how that bullet performed once it got into the body of the animal. And, and I was able to note how quickly that animal went down and how quickly that animal lost its life. So if you can put a bullet through the heart and lung area, uh, and not the area, but the heart and lung, that animal is going to go into shock very quickly and goes down very, very quickly. And, and, and again, that's that FTW's claim. It's our job to take that animal down with the first shot, meaning not only take it down, but to, to actually kill that animal with the first shot. But you always need to be ready for a second a second shot. And that's why I mentioned the, the, the gun, the running away from your shot. The, the, that's a, the shot that if you need to put that animal down after he's been and he's still moving, that's a shot to consider. Otherwise, no, don't don't try to go shooting them up the backside. That's it's not necessary. Wait for that animal to turn because in almost every instance, unless that animal's already been hit and he's running away or she's running away, uh, there's going to be an opportunity for an angle of a heart lung shot. And to me, that that's where you do high shoulder shots. 
Yeah, again, you're talking about the spinal cord that runs about a third of the way or maybe a quarter of the way off the top of the animal's back or the withers, if you will, like on, on like, uh, meaning the, the top of the shoulder. If you can precisely do that every shot and take that spinal cord out, uh, maybe so. But still, the high percentage of putting an animal down quickly and animal uh, quickly and humanely, I should should say, is is that heart and lung area, and uh, to put one through that that spot right there. So, you know, spend a lot of time looking at photographs. There are all kinds of great uh, uh, overlay type photos that show you where the heart and lung area is, and excuse me, in different animals. And uh, so learn the anatomy. Learn what that, it, too, it means once you get that animal down, learn how to properly take out the insides uh, and know how to do it if you're going to mount the animal, if you're going to save the cape, if you're going to save the skin. And these days, I generally recommend if you take an animal, even if you're going to have a skull mount done, uh, you know, take the entire cape uh make that cut around the middle behind his shoulders and pull that skin forward and then take that entire thing into your local taxidermy. You can, uh, studio, you can freeze it. I happen to use double nickel, uh, here in Texas and they do just absolutely fantastic job. But every animal that I take, whether I intend to mount that animal or not, I, if it's a male, I'd, I'd, I'd take the cape as well, too, because they're always looking for capes and always in need of capes. And so, and some tax numbers will even give you credit for bringing in a cape and maybe uh, that, that skull mount that you want to have done or the European mount, it's not going to cost you quite as much. The skins on females, I try to save those as well, too. I'll put them in a freezer and get them to the, a taxidermist. Or there are also some charitable organizations that are in wanting to, to, to get skins because of course they can be turned into leather and, uh, or throw rugs and all those kind of things. So learn how to take that skin off properly. Great way of doing that is to, to go spend time with a taxidermist and just have him explain how to remove that skin or, uh, get with somebody that really knows what they're doing. And, uh, that's another way uh, we've done these classes and shown people how to do it. And they're, I'm sure there are others kind of very much like them that will do the same thing. Then learn how to quarter that animal. Learn what the state regulations require you to do in terms of leaving proof of sex or how far that animal can be broken down before it reaches its final destination, meaning the final destination could be a, a meat processor or your home or your your freezer. But learn how to quarter that animal properly. Learn how to... to uh, to, to get it, get the meat cooled down. There are a lot of different ways of doing it. Of putting it in a cooler. A lot of times in the northern climes, you can hang it with the skin on for a few days and get it good and cold. One of the things that can also be done if you live in uh, parts of Texas, kind of like I do, where there you may not have access to uh, a cooling system, is to uh, go buy a bunch of uh, crushed ice or, or ice from an ice producer, if you will, and put a little bit of ice and put a layer of ice down in a cooler, then lay the first quarter on, maybe the front quarter, uh, two front quarters if you got a big cooler, uh, throw some more ice on, 
put another layer of meat on, throw some more ice on, and then keep this. You can it'll stay that way for several days, and it's a great way to age that as well too. Be sure when you do that to open that little thing, little spigot at the at the bottom, so the, the the water as it melts can drain out, and then replenish that ice. Check on it at least once or twice a day, depending on where you are, depending on what kind of what kind of cooler you're using. But but that too is a great way. Then learn about the different cuts and how to cut those up as to processing the animal yourself. So to me, that is, is all part of it, is, is taking that animal down cleanly, taking that animal apart, taking the, the skin properly, making sure you know the rules and regulations as to where the tag goes that you have that is provided with your license or through a, another program, whether it goes on the antler, whether it stays with the antler, whether it stays with the, the carcass until it reaches its final destination. If there's per paperwork required to, uh, if you have to leave the, the tag on the uh, uh carcass you know how you make sure that you get photographs of everything or if there's a particular piece of document that you need to get it legally to the taxidermist learn also about sharing meat there there's paperwork sometimes required if you're going to give somebody some meat you can learn all this by going to your your local dnr site or calling the local game warden and they can go really explain more in greater depth what's required in a particular area or in a particular uh, particular state. Now, when you're doing all this, one of the things that I failed to mention is years ago, I wore, I wore rubber gloves all the time when I took animals apart. My background was, of course, as a wildlife disease, especially soft, and we were dealing with animals that had diseases. For the most part, you really don't have to worry about the diseases. You hear a lot about CWD, but it is not transmissible to humans. Uh, the uh, EHD or blue tongue, which most of the time the, the animals that you take, well, you don't have to worry about because they would have already died before you had a chance to take them if they're dealing with these diseases. But, you know, these days just to be on the safe side to make yourself feel better is uh, run by a... a, a uh, pharmacy and, and ask them about some rubber gloves and then carry those in your pack as well too and and um, whenever or wherever you're going to try to process know about knives I, I, I want to do a separate uh, podcast here before too very long before we get in the hunting season about hunting knives uh, I, I will tell you that since we're talking about a darn good deer hunter to me a darn good deer hunter somebody has a sharp knife and it keeps it sharp. Maybe carries a little diamond steel or something that he can keep that knife sharp. And uh, then um, just keep it sharp. Use it for a while, hit it a couple times, and you're going to be so much happier. You know, most times somebody gets cut, it's cut from a from a dull knife rather than a really, really sharp knife. So learn a little bit about sharpening knives. What's the best knife? To me, any knife with a blade much longer than your index finger is a waste of, of good metal. Now, the exceptions that I'll make about that is once I get that animal home where I'm personally butchering it, uh, I may take a, a longer knife to cut stakes across the grain or to make the different cuts. And uh, 
So, but for the most part, if you're going to carry a knife, a pocket knife works just great. Uh, a sheath knife, to me, I like those that have a little bit of a drop point because in eviscerating an animal, I can, if I'm going to have to reach down into the, the cavity to where I want to try to leave the, the rib cage uncracked, uh, I want to know exactly where the point of that knife is. So if I've got that pointed knife almost at the, held so that it's almost or on the tip of my finger, I know exactly where it is all the time. So that way I know too when I reach in there to, to pull maybe the trachea and reach way up to the trachea and the esophagus right to where it comes into the, to the thoracic cavity or chest cavity, I know exactly where it is and I won't be cutting myself kind of thing. So all oh, that's part of it. <clears throat> knowing your firearm, we're going to kind of work backwards now, knowing your firearm and using something or your, your bow or crossbow. And if you, I'm not much on, on archery. Uh, I've hunted with a bow and arrow years ago. And, uh, I love messing with bow hunters. Cause when they asked me about Larry, do you hunt with a bow and arrow or with archery? And I said, yeah, I did. And then I grew up many, many years ago, but I, I truly appreciate bow hunters, particularly those who know their equipment and who, who know how to shoot and, and know when to take shots and, and when not same thing with, with crossbows it, these days too, we're, we're starting to see, uh, an interest in air guns, Luke Clayton, dear friend, as I mentioned earlier, do podcast, radio, TV together, hunt together, fish together every time, every opportunity we have, uh, Luke is very much into some of the big bore air guns and those have now gotten to the point to where they are absolutely fantastically deadly and accurate, you know, out to, to known distance, learn the capabilities of your firearm as to at what point do you no longer shoot at that distance or beyond and know your capabilities with it. That that's a big part of it. We talked a little bit about bullets. Use a bullet that's designed for the animal that you're taking. Don't use a, uh, uh, a varmint style bullet that's very frangible that will blow up upon uh, impact to the animal. Get Use one, hard and hard, use one that's a solid that'll punch a hole through maybe a heart and lung area and do very little damage. Uh, yes, it will kill the animal, but it may take a long time for that wound channel to, uh, to, uh, to accumulate enough blood and lose enough blood to put that animal down. Use a an controlled expansion type bullet. Know what that bullet does at varying distances. One of the beauties of the ELDX bullet that Hornady has and a uh, couple of the others they now have that are in just now been recently released. Uh, those bullets were designed for doing great expansion proper expansion, I should say, at distances very close and a long way out there as well, too. Uh, you want to create a wound channel that uh, makes a void, if you will, to accumulate, uh, destroys a lot of tissue in that heart and lung so that uh, that animal will bleed out very, very quickly kind of thing. A lot of times, too, since we're talking about this, and we're, I hear people say, well, I shot my deer, and he, and he didn't go down immediately, so I should put another one right in the same place. When I got there, those two bullets were an inch apart or half inch apart. I almost went in the same hole kind of thing. That, that's great in terms of accuracy, but to me, when it comes to putting that animal down quickly and humanely, 
if that first bullet will creating a substantial wound channel does not put that animal down immediately, I want to put another bullet into them, but I want to create a second wound channel, a, a larger wound channel, if you will, a second one or a third one, whatever the situation may be, to again put that animal down from blood loss and and going becoming unconscious very, very quickly because of blood loss as quickly and, and humanely as, as I earthly possibly can. So uh, if I know that I hit that animal, say, in the lower third of the, uh, right behind the shoulder, immediately where that crease is, just above the knuckle on that front leg, that second shot I may put just a little bit higher. You know, try to get at least maybe hold to where I'm, precisely place place that bullet to maybe two inches higher or two inches to the to the uh to the right and and up just a little bit to create the second wound channel that to me is is also part of being a a darn good deer hunter uh going back the other way as well farther is uh again learn before we get off that learn your capabilities with whatever you shoot and the capabilities of whatever it is that you shoot <clears throat> i dearly love hunting with handguns have forever in these days i shoot almost exclusively well pretty exclusively uh taurus raging hunters and and i've got them in a in a uh, 357 Magnum, a 44 Mag, a 454 Casul, and a 460 S&W Magnum. And my, my two preferences are the 44 Mag and the 454 Casul, because in that one I can also shoot a 45 Long Colt. And uh, unfortunately, most of the uh, 45 Long Colt ammo that's available is not really designed for hunting. So if you're going to use a 45 Long Colt, it's a good idea to have somebody hand load some, some horny bullets for you designed more for, for hunting than simply just, just shooting. But, uh, with the handguns, I know using the Hornady ammo and particularly in terms of the 240 grain XTP and the 44 mag, I've got a Trigicon SRO red dot sight on all those guns. And, uh, with, with that particular gun, I feel very comfortable out to a hundred yards at a hundred yards. I can keep those shots with easily within less than a three inch group. So to me, that's acceptable accuracy. Am I going to shoot farther than that? No. Am I going to shoot closer? Absolutely. That, my goal is always to get as close to an animal as I possibly can before I pull the trigger. That's, that's my way of doing it. I, I love shooting long range. And you've noticed I said shooting rather than hunting. I have shot some animals at long range simply because there was no way to get any closer. And in most instances, that animal had already been shot. And so I was trying to put him down as quickly as mainly as possible. But in a, in a, in a situation where I can get close, I'm going to do my darnest to get close to that animal. Again, that comes down to being that darn good deer hunter of hunting is getting close rather than simply shooting it at great distances. That's my preference and the way that I like to do things. So, you know, if, if you like shooting at a thousand yards, by all means, please do so. I love the FTWs, uh, F, they were the, I mentioned the uh, Sportsman's All Rather All Terrain uh, markmanship. They, they teach you how to shoot at a thousand yards, but they also tell you they're not far long range hunting. You know, if you're capable of placing a bullet in a, in a six inch circle at a, 
at a thousand yards, then hopefully when you get to within 200 yards or less of that animal, you could precisely place that bullet within less than an inch. And that's why I train at long distance. Yeah, I like to shoot long distance at, at paper plates or at steel plates or uh, even water jugs that I, again, once I shoot them, I go pick up all the plastic after I do it. But uh, <coughs> to me, excuse me, to me, learn how to shoot long ranges so that you can crawl in short distance and take that animal down. With the habitat, I want to get back to that, is a, a darn good deer hunter is somebody who uh, knows how to, uh, to to look at an animal and say, yes, that animal is probably a three-year-old, or he's a yearling, or he's a four-year-old. Uh, and you can do that. I tell people, I said, if you look at a deer, particularly during the breeding season, the rest of the time they're kind of tough to tell. But during the breeding season, I usually try to, to, to break those down, animals down, bucks down, if you will, to young, uh, medium age, old age, and kind of beyond old age kind of thing. And, and when I look at them, I look at them as I would a person. And, and, and a young deer is going to look like a young teenager. Uh, a two to three year old deer is going to look like at 18 to about 30 year old. That mature deer is going to look much like a, a four or, a, a, you know, 30, upper 30s, 40, 50 year old. And that over the hill deer, deer, if you will, if there is such a thing, because I've seen some bucks produce their best antlers if they live that long at 14, 15 years of age. But uh, that's simply because their, their requirements for maintenance nutrition can, are met easily and they can now channel that into antler development. But those over the hill deer, uh, in terms of age, look like old men. So that's a great way to do that. Learn how to age deer. Uh, if you're into uh, antlers, and most of us are, you know, learn how to, to judge the antlers in terms of uh, using key characters such as ear length, ear tip, ear tip spread, because like in the county where I hunt in Texas, a legal buck has to be 13 inches inside. I just happen to know from having measured a lot of deer in that area with a forward pointed ears that that ear tip to ear tip spread is 13 inches. So main beam inside spread has to be beyond 13 inches there in that those antler restriction areas. And there are other places where they're, they're kind of similar as well too. Uh, ear tip to most ears in northern deer will be 15 to 17 and a half inches uh, in the large areas. In deep south Texas, they're about 15 and a half to 17 inches. Measure those ear tip to ear tip spreads when you get a chance on an animal that somebody else has taken and hold them kind of in a natural position and then measure them. Measure the length of the each ear or the ear too because you can use that as, a, as an indicator to tine length and main beam length. Uh, measure the, the outermost point of the eye to the tip of the nose, which is a measurement the taxidermists use in terms of trying to come up with the right forms as well, too. And generally, in most deer, that's going to run anywhere from maybe six and a, six and a half inches uh, in, in some of the smaller deer to as much as eight inches in some of the larger deer. But if you measure those, that will give you a pretty good indication that you can use, again, for, for tine length, you know, comparing that length to the tines. Um, mass is something that impresses me because in the areas that I've hunted, 
our bucks tend not to produce very, very massive antlers. But so I am enthralled with mass, I guess, is, and tine length and main beam length more than I am spread. But one of the things that I've done over the years, I've measured a lot of eyes on deer. And I'm talking about deer that I've taken and that are that have been taken in the very northern climes of, of Alberta where those deer could weigh 300 pounds field dress to our little what people down in Texas are think in terms of Texas of our deer being small, uh, measured same thing there. Same thing with, with coos deer out in uh, Sonora, Mexico and New Mexico and Arizona. As a whole, most of those animals will have an eye that's about an inch in diameter. And that inch in diameter equates to about four inches in circumference. So if I'm interested in mass, I can compare to, uh, mass right above the, the burr and throughout the antlers by comparing the eye size to that circumference or diameter of, uh, of the main beam to give me some ideas there. So, you know, if you're into scoring deer, that that's absolutely great. The main reason I score deer is so that I can compare what size antlers this year's three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-years-old, yearlings, whatever, have in compared to the future. Uh, antlers are a reflection of good health in most instances. So if each year the antlers in terms of maybe to gross Boone and Crockett score and to learn how to do that, you can go to uh, the, the Boone and Crockett website and get uh, a score sheets to show you how to do that as well. But as long as my weights are improving per age class and my antlers are improving through the age class, it tells me that our management program is working. Sometimes these are very subtle and sometimes it'll be a kind of a dramatic jump as well too. So again, that's all part of it. Uh, as, as far as I'm concerned, learning what deer eat. Absolutely. I want to know exactly what deer eat. I don't know sometimes that I can tell you what the genus and species are of the plant, <clears throat> but one of, the, one of the first things I do when I get into an area is if somebody else shoots a deer, I'll put on some rubber gloves. I will open that deer up and I will look into the rumen, the rumen being the largest part of that, that stomach. That's where, that's before the, that animal takes the bite, goes down the stomach, or it goes down the esophagus into that, that first area of the stomach. And uh, I can look at it. And I can see, okay, I can't tell what kind of plant that is, but oh my God, yeah, I remember that there's a lot of it here. So deer must obviously love it. So I start looking to see if I can find that plant on the property, or I may know where on the property that plant exists. So it tells me that's a pretty good source to start hunting because there's food there. So it, it's, it's little things like that, uh, that, you know, can make you a darn good deer hunter, if you will. Um, <laughs> I'm going on. There, there's so much to me to, to, to being a, 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 that darn good deer hunter. But again, I want to know as much as I can about that animal, including food habits, including how to age that animal, including proper, uh, shot placement, uh, from all different angles, knowing how to take that animal apart. Once I get it on the ground, knowing how to properly photograph that animal, to be respectful of that animal as well, too, because of the fact that, you need to be respectful. So very often, uh, one of my pet peeves, and I'll have to tell you very quickly, one of my pet peeves is, is for somebody that, that shoots an animal and, and has killed an animal, and then there's this maniacal laughing or this maniacal celebration 
there's nothing wrong with, with, with celebrating a little bit, but be respectful of that animal. You've just taken that animal's life. One of the things about the Europeans that I really enjoy is the ritual that they go through of taking three boughs of evergreen and dipping into the animal's blood. And one is placed where that where the wound is, where the, the, the bullet is. The other is placed in the mouth and called a lezibition, which simply is the last bite that this animal takes. And then the third one is respectfully presented to the person who takes that animal. And in his cap or his hat, on he, he wears that for a 24-hour period of showing respect to that animal. It's something I think we don't necessarily need to do here in North America, but it, I think it's something that we need to consider in the fact that, hey, this animal gave his life so that my family has sustenance. My family can can have food. Uh, I, I owe this animal a certain amount of respect. So... Be respectful of of uh, of the animal. Be respectful of the habitat. Don't be a litter bug. Don't don't throw trash on the ground. You know, if you're out hunting or just say, oh, "Well, I'll hide this under a rock and nobody will ever see it," kind of thing, or just you know, toss a, a an empty can out of the uh, or these days plastic, you know, water bottle out in the field. Just leave it there. Take it back. Uh, same thing if you finish, not you know, leave half. A, or a quarter of a water bottle full of water and you get ready to, to properly throw it away, don't throw that water away. Pour it out on the ground somewhere and then put the empty container into uh, the, uh, uh, the the waste, whatever you have set up, you know, the trash can or whatever. That's just kind of being respectful too as well as far as I'm concerned. But be respectful of the animal. Be respectful of the habitat. Be respectful of the other hunters uh, that, that you deal with. You know, not everybody hunts, even in, in the uh, primitive years of the humankind. There were hunters, there were individuals who were extremely good hunters. There were other individuals who were extremely good at something else. So maybe not everybody in a small tribe or a small family group hunted, but they all depended upon that hunter to take an animal so they could continue their own life kind of thing. And so even if you're not a hunter, you know, be respectful of that that uh, person that is that is providing um, sustenance for you, for you and your family. Being a good hunter too has an understanding of how important hunting is in the scheme of overall wildlife conservation. Conservation is the wise use of; it's not the preservation. And preserving kills in the long run. If if we try to preserve life, all life. Everything would die. Life on Earth depends upon the death of another organism, directly or indirectly. So, you know, it, it, that's just part of it. Uh, I get tickled sometimes because somebody said, oh, my God, you eat meat. And I said, yeah, I do. What do you eat? And they go, well, I eat vegetables. I only, only eat vegetative. You know, those those that vegetable matter was just as alive as what that that animal was, that, that whose who's meat and, and protein I'm utilizing there. So... Uh, you can't live if you don't kill something either directly or indirectly. You know, just like I used to get a lot of talks and and uh, pros and cons about hunting and and animal use and all that kind of thing. And somebody, I'd ask somebody, and I uh, said, uh, "What do you eat?" You know, and they go, "Well, I I eat beans." I, did, I said, "You eat beans?" I said, "Oh my God, 
you're destroying an embryo. You have not even given that, that, that embryo the opportunity to experience life. At least when I've taken an animal, I, that animal has experienced life. And it's, it's part of the overall food chain when you get right down to it kind of thing. And, and even the beans are part of that overall food chain. But just because uh, you eat beans doesn't mean that you're not killing something because, my gosh, you know, you, you truly are kind of thing. So, you know, be respectful of the hunter. Uh, treat people the way that you would like to be treated. Always be trying to learn something. I... I I've been around a long time on this old face of this earth and good Lord willing be around a little bit longer. And, and, uh, one of the things that I am truly looking forward to each day that I wake up and I can't wait to wake up to me. Sleep is the, is a, is a total waste of time. If I didn't have to sleep, I never would. Cause I love life so much that, uh, I, I want to continually learn. But the one thing I look forward to every day when I wake up in the morning is, Oh my God, what am I going to learn today? <clears throat> what new experiences are there? What am I going to relearn? Cause a lot of times it, it's things that I learned that, Hey, I already knew, but I just forgot them over the years. I hadn't practiced them in a long time. So being a good deer hunter, a darn good deer hunter, all this comes into play and, and a whole lot more. So, Tim, I hope I've answered your question in a long roundabout way. And uh, hopefully, if, if not, I've stimulated a whole lot more questions <laughs> what it really means to be a darn good deer hunter. But uh, we're kind of running out of time and I'm kind of running out of steam. I've, I've got a, a special event I've got to go take care of this afternoon. And uh, I'm now a bar owner, for those of you who are anti-bar, I'm sorry, but... Uh, uh, between a, a, a family member and another member, we own two different bars, one in Round Top, Texas, and, and one in LaGrange, Texas, called the Crown Bar. And this afternoon, we have got a whole bunch of people coming in to an, a, a special event that will cover a whole lot of different grounds, and, and a lot of uh, the money that is derived from that event will go to charities scattered around, dealing from everything from wildlife to uh to children, to the aged, and so it, it's one of those things, and that to me too, by the way, Tim, I think is being part of, of a darn good deer hunter, is being involved in your community and, and helping in every respect that you can, but again, always learning, continually are learning. So until next week, we get an opportunity to sit around this campfire again, I, I so very much appreciate everything that... Uh, uh, that I hear from you guys out there who are actually listening to the podcast. Please continue to send questions. Thank you so very much for, for, uh, for, for, for listening. And, and hopefully together we can explore a few more things in the future and look forward to being right back with you here next week at the DSC Campfire. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Thanks for joining us around the campfire. To leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode, go to Instagram at Larry Wysoon Outdoors. Please join me right here next week for another DSC Campfire. Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by The Crown Bar in LaGrange, Texas, H3 Whitetail Solutions, Remington, Texas Wildlife Association, TRHP Outdoors. 